All right, I, didn't, I haven't taught uh, adult quipping in a while. Um, glad, that, glad you're here. I didn't know how many people would show up. This is nice to see. So, um, my, my name is uh, Wayne Cochran, and I've, I've been at Glenwood, I think I came here in the summer of 99. So I came and I had a friend from where I was at that talked about this church, the first church I came to, and so I've been here since then. And... And over that period of time, I, I've taught adult equipping courses, and there's been quite of a gap. I, there was one kind of in the COVID era that I did, and, but it's been, it's been a little bit of time since I've done one, but I used, I used to do this quite a bit. Um, I, so I, I came to Vancouver. I, I was, so a little bit of background. Um, I, I moved here because I, I was a professor in computer science at Washington State University when I moved here in 99, and then... I'm no longer doing that, but staying here. And um, so I've, I've always, when I was in graduate school, I, I went through a lot of things in my life. And one of the things that I, I was under a man named Doug Busby, who is an Old Testament scholar. And, and, and it just blew my mind how much there was in the Old Testament that spoke about Jesus. And, and so that, a lot of changes in my life, and, and for the, I don't think I actually read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation until I was in graduate school, and, I, and since then, that's kind of something I do regularly now, and, and, and um, each pass, I learn something new, and so I've always been sort of a, a student of scripture since then, and really, and I've enjoyed teaching these classes, and, and probably most of what I teach is nothing new, it's just stuff that I've picked up along the way, and, and a lot of stuff that I borrow from him from the day, and so um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. So if, if, if you want access to my Dropbox or any of my notes or anything, you can please just go ahead and contact me that through, through email if you, or if you want, me, want my text or anything, I can give you that too if you want. So um, I'll, I'll go and open a prayer and we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. Um, Lord God, uh, just pray your spirit be present. Lord, you've, you've enriched us so much with with your word and, and what you tell us about you and, and that it would come alive and it would come off the page and, and uh, into our minds and our hearts and um, we thank you for your goodness to us and, and in Christ's name, amen. So I've, I've titled, we've titled this class The Gospel According to the Prophets. So the, the goal here is to go through the Old Testament and find all the elements. It's, this class will not be exhaustive, it's 10 weeks long. It, and to look at all the references in the Old Testament that we can find that speak of Christ, the Messiah, and the cross, his death and resurrection. Right? This was not something new that was made up later. This is something that you find that has a foundation in, in the Old Testament. So that's kind of largely what this class is about. And so today is going to be kind of an introduction, kind of, and, and um, of course, it won't be exhaustive, but we, we, we plan to... L- We'll stay in Genesis a little while, um, then we'll, we'll jump to other, other elements of Scripture. We'll spend a wh- good while in Isaiah and the Psalms and some of the minor prophets looking at the various predictions of the coming of, the Christ, of Christ. And so today I'm just going to sort of lay some groundwork for that. And um, so, but by the way, just some, some books that I, I recommend if, while you're reading. By the way... I assume this is kind of the beginning of the year. Are, are, are some of you doing Bible read-throughs this year? Or is it a so, yeah, if, you're, if you're doing just the 
Genesis to Revelation, you should be about Exodus 13 today, right? If you're doing the three chapters a day, right? So you should be kind of at the Exodus, which is very apropos. We'll spend a while with the Exodus. Um, so, so if you find the Old Testament boring, and I know I talked to a lot of people that have been Christians for a long time, and they just find it dry, and I like, you know, one way to is there's a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, and he, I, he has a great podcast called The Naked Bible. That He, he died of um, cancer last spring, which is in a, so he's greatly missed. But he's, this is sort of a, a very popular book that just brings the Old Testament alive. He's, we, and we'll talk some, some about some of his views. I don't agree with everything he says, but he has this idea of the divine council and the Deuteronomy 32 worldview and, and um, some really interesting views that I'll talk about from time to time. But if, you're, if, you're, if you find your Bible boring... Read this, right? And, and um, his big thing was we've lost the supernatural elements of a lot of scripture, right? And so that this this is a fantastic. He's a, he's a um, tremendous scholar. He's he's helped with a lot of biblical translations. He was a, an expert in all the ancient languages and stuff. So he's he's fan, fantastic. Another thing, if you're not, is as um, Tim Binder years ago turned me on to. a to, there's a collection of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which means all the early church fathers predating the Nicaea Council in 4th fourth, in fourth century. And so I, I skim these and read these. My, my favorite one is Irenaeus, is all the, um, against heresies. It's mostly, mostly against heresies, where Irenaeus is, is dealing with uh, the heresy mainly of Gnosticism. And that, that is... which. Uh, as you know, John, if you read 1 John, he's fighting the, the heresy of Gnosticism as well. And, and, um, and lately, one guy I've, I've been reading is, is Justin Martyr, who was born at, at about 100 AD. So this is really early findings. In fact, there's a section in there he has, one of his surviving dialogues is a dialogue with Trypho. And I, I've just found this over the Christmas break, I was reading this, and... It's amazing how much someone from the second century's uh, view of, of who Christ was is just perfectly in line with the doctrines that, that we would believe today. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, the, the doctrine of, of the deity of Christ or his resurrection, these are all things that were made up you know, after the Council of Nicaea, if, if you listen to Dan Brown or people like that. And this is simply not true, right? I mean, it's patently not true. I mean, the... the what Irenaeus and Justin Martyr have to say about Christ are the same things, for the most part, I would say about Christ. Um, another great way, Polycarp. If you're familiar with Polycarp, Polycarp actually studied under John, the Apostle John. And, and, um, and he was martyred. He has a really interesting... So there's some writings of... And it's really interesting to listen to Polycarp because... Because he was so close to John, you, you, you understand that his views on, on things um, are really tied closely with him. And so our views of what we believe about Christ were not something made up several centuries later. So anyway, so if you get it, and, and I'm actually, at some point, I'm going to talk a little bit about Justin Martyr, and, and I'll reference some stuff in here that are just fantastic. So it's, it's kind of like um, Plato's dialogues. He has this, uh, this mythical Jew named Trypho. And, he's, and it's all based on this dialogue that he has with him. And he's showing him how Christ is the Messiah in the Old Testament. Right? So this is like 130 A.D. So right in the heart of the kind of stuff that we're talking about, he was talking about you know, in, the, in the second century. So anyway, so 
just a great reference to have. And, and of course, there's many other great books that, ha that talk about th the subject of this class. One that I've, I've had, that I've read, uh, Walter Kaiser, and I'll refer to him once in a while, you'll see. So anyway, so just some good books. So, um, so this is the opening to Hebrews chapter 1. And so it begins, you know, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But then it says, in these last days, he's, talking, he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, who's the heir of all things and the exact representation of his being, right? So but the idea is that God spoke to us through the prophets, so in the Old Testament. And, and of course, it culminates and finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Well, and that's largely what this, this class is going to be about, is how do, we, how do we read the Old Testament prophets, and how do they speak of the Christ? And how did Christ himself reference the prophets? And, and, and as a witness, is how, how did he, what did he think of what they said about him as well? So, so on the road to Emmaus, so this is after the resurrection in Luke 24. Um, so this... Christ has, has been crucified, he's been risen, and there's these two disciples on the road of, of Emmaus, and Jesus walks up next to them, and they don't recognize who he is. They don't, they don't understand um, the events that have happened. They're very sad. They're, they're, their leader, their king, their Messiah has been crucified. They don't understand that he's been resurrected, and Jesus has this conversation with them. Um, so, and, and he actually kind of berates them at one point as they're walking down the road. He says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Right? So this is, this is what the prophets said would happen. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he says, At the beginning with Moses, at beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. I w and... Unfortunately, Luke doesn't record those details because I would have loved to hear Christ you know, open up Genesis and open up Exodus and Leviticus and, and Isaiah and Zechariah to, to do, you know. So, so he began to tell them the things in the scripture that were about himself, specifically the fact that he had to die and rise again, right? How, why did you not believe? He's, he's saying, why do you not believe what the prophets have said? This stuff is ancient. Why do you not believe them? And then, and then later on, he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. So Christ is saying that the Old Testament was a witness to the fact that he had to die and he had to suffer and rise again. Now, when you read the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the first, Mark is the earliest one that was written. But they all follow a very similar pattern. pattern. Um, they all, and I love, I love the fact Mark's really easy because it's 16 chapters. And if you're a computer scientist, that's a power of two, right? And you can split it in the middle, which is eight. Right in the middle, and the middle at eight is Peter's confession. And Peter's confession actually divides all the synoptic Gospels into two pieces. So, you know, Peter's confession, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then you have Peter's great confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That's the, that's the confession. Now, before that confession, when Jesus references his, 
his death and his resurrection, he always does it in kind of a parabolic way. He'll say things like, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. Right? But after that confession, he clearly tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again on the third day. Right? So from that point on, his mission is to the cross and it's explicit. But before that, it's sort of obscure. Right? So if you read, if you, you know, in like when he's talking with Nicodemus in John 3, he's talking about as the Son of Man was lifted up, so much, as, as Moses lifted up the, the bronze serpent, so much the Son of Man be lifted up, which is a really obscure reference. But if you understand the end of Isaiah 52, you know what he's talking about. It, and, and somehow Nicodemus understood that. But it's sort of an obscure thing. But after the Peter's confession, he clearly states his mission. And, yet, and you, if you notice, Satan sort of interjected in there, right? Because after Peter's confession, then Peter... Right? His first act as Pope was to say, no, Jesus, you can't go to... I, mean, I was joking with the Pope thing. Right? <laughs> he, but the first thing he says, no, far be it from you. Like, you're not going to die. And then what, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get, get behind me, Satan. Right? I mean, it's sort of... So Satan knows the game plan at that point. He knows what's happening. And, that's the, and so his first, thing to try to, his first thing is he wants to subvert the cross at that point. He knows the game's afoot at that point. The plan is made. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected by his peoples. All the, all the, all the chief priests and are going to reject him. He's going to, he's going to suffer and die. And he even knows how he's going to die. Right? He knows it's going to be on a cross because he tells the disciples to follow him that they must take up their cross. And, right? and, and if you read in just after Peter's confession, right? So, so Christ becomes explicit. But before that point, things are kind of obscure. And they're obscure a little bit intentionally. But once, once you get to Peter's confession, there's no doubt. And so why, why these people were confused? At this, you can still see the disciples don't get it. Even when Jesus tells them straight up, exactly this is what's happening, they still don't quite understand what he has to say about it. Right? And you'll find that the Bible is a little bit like this as well. Um... Another great example is in the, in, when Jesus is teaching on um, using the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And as you know, the rich man is in torment in Hades and, and uh, he wants to... And, and Abraham, he's having this conversation with Abraham, interestingly enough. And, and the rich man doesn't want his, his brothers and family that are still alive to suffer the same fate as him. So, as you know, he, he asked Abraham, well, can, can someone, can Lazarus, you can raise someone up and go from the dead and go tell my brothers and my sisters and, and my family that what's going on. They'll believe you if someone's risen from the dead, right? Then what is, what, in the story, what does Abraham says? He says, no, he said, so the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead. Now, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he's thinking, no, that's not enough. But Jesus said, but he says, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will believe and repent. But he said to them, this is the response, he says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So somehow, what Jesus is relating, that the witness of Moses and the prophets is greater than the miraculous event of a resurrection. Just kind of a, an astounding result. But if you read the Old Testament, you know this is true. You know, after the children of Israel come out of, ex, out of um, Egypt, they've just seen the ten plagues. They've seen 
They've passed through the Red Sea. They've seen the Egyptian army drown, right? They've seen God provide them with manna and with quail and with water. They've seen all these things. But would you say that's a generation that believed God? I mean, they, they, no, they were left to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, right? So the miraculous doesn't have the impact that we think it has. It, it, it did have an impact on Pharaoh. In fact, had a reverse impact on Pharaoh, right? It, it actually further hardened his heart. So, but this idea that the witness of Moses and the prophets carries more weight than a resurrection, is, that's, a, that's sort of a stunning statement. Right? So that makes me want to go, well, what, what do Moses and the prophets, what do they have to say about this? Right? Of course, the resurrection was meant to be a witness, right? That's, that, was the, that was the proof that Christ had conquered death. So, when we, so when, notice he says, he talks about Moses and the prophets, and he'll say the Psalms. So, um, so the Hebrew canon of, of, of the, in their Bible is generally referred to as the Tanakh. And Tanakh is an acronym for, for Torah, which is the first part of the law. And then Nevi'im and Ketivim. I don't know how you pronounce these things. Claude, you can help me if you... But, so these are sort of the dividing. So when, you, when they talk about Moses and the law, they're talking about the, the Torah or we sometimes call this the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, and those are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to camp there for a while. So, so when Jesus refers to the books of Moses or the law, that's the element of, of, of which is the same in our first five books in our Bible as well. Right? So that's the first part, the Torah. When he's talking about the prophets, now this is a little interesting. So there's the early prophets, Joshua through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, which they just had as a single book. So in, in the Hebrew canon. And then there's the later prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I find it interesting that uh, Daniel's not considered, he's part of the, what's called the writings. He's not in that particular category. And then the, what we call the, the <coughs> minor prophets, the 12 um, prophets. At the, at, these are the ones at the end of our Bible, right? The 12, that was considered one book. So, so that's, so they're talking about the prophets. Those are the books that, we would be familiar with. And then finally are the writings, or some, sometimes just referred to as, as the Psalms, and that includes Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, and, and other various writings in the Old Testament. And, and Daniel's always the one that seemed a little strange why that wouldn't be in the prophets. But that, so when Jesus says they have the law of Moses, they have, <coughs> they have the prophets, and they have the Psalms and the writings, this, this is, he's referencing the entire Hebrew canon. Those are, those are, these, are the, these are the books that they have. So somehow, these are supposed to be a witness to um, who God is, right? So, yeah. So, we're gonna, so amazingly enough, we're going to camp out for here in a while. Right? In the first five books of Moses, which have a lot to say about um, the Messiah, at least the, the very genesis of the idea of a Messiah occurs in these particular books as well. Um, and you find Christ will quote frequently and often from, from these books, all these books, right, for the most part. So one of my favorite ones is when um, Jesus is talking with the Sadducees, right? And, there's, and they go, to, they, you know, they don't believe in a resurrection like, like we would believe in a resurrection. And so they were, they posed this question to Jesus about uh, well, what if there's this woman that marries a man and the man dies and, and another guy marries him and, and there's a sequence of seven people and, and who, well, 
to them, it was kind of like their little proof that there couldn't possibly be a resurrection because you know, when they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And, and Jesus knows that, that they were only going to, the only books they held to be canonical were, were the, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So, he, so anyone know how Christ responds to that one? How does he, and he doesn't go outside of here. Right? He, in fact, he doesn't go outside of Genesis. To show that a resurrection, what does Jesus do? Yeah, he says, yeah, he says, you don't know the power of Scripture. And they're like the angels of heaven. There's neither marrying or giving in a marriage. And they're like the sons of God. And he says, says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not of the dead. Right? I mean, those statements, you're right. If God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're just dead and rotting in their graves... Right? That whole phrase doesn't carry much weight anymore. Right? So, so that's, that was Jesus' argument, just from using the law. So, as you know, there's no, there's no explicit statement you'll find in Genesis about a, a resurrection. But if you read, the, the implications are strong, according to Jesus, that there had to be a resurrection. Otherwise, why are we wasting our time? Right? <clears throat> if, if there was no resurrection, I guarantee you I would not be here this morning. Right? That's why I'm here. Um, I'd be home getting ready for NFL football or something, right? If there was no resurrection, I would not bother with, with any of this. I'm here because of the witness of the resurrection. So I think that's, and, uh, that's our hope. So anyway, so that's, so that's what, when you hear Jesus or, any, or Paul reference the law, the prophets, and the writings, these, that, that's the, the Old Testament Hebrew canon. So, Yes? Just we learned something interesting the other day that minor prophets aren't minor because they're less important, only because they're shorter. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah, I've never liked that term minor prophets because they're by no means minor. And and Jesus didn't treat them as minor. He didn't treat Jonah as minor, right? So, yeah. So, in fact, uh, the book of Zechariah is just is one of my favorites because it's so rich in in uh, explicit references about what the coming Messiah, you know, riding on a donkey, being sold for seventy pieces of silver, has a lot to do with his second coming and how you know every all the eyes are going to see him because he, you know he's been pierced. They'll, everyone's going to see that he's been pierced. You know, they're going to see the Mount of Olives split in two. It's just yeah, it's just rich. There's a lot of stuff that you get in there that you don't get in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and elsewhere. So. Now here's a riddle. Now if you're reading, if you've been reading Exodus, so if you're doing the Bible read through, you're going to get to this chapter pretty soon. And there's a, what I call it, kind of call a riddle. And this is something, in fact, I think probably everybody's thought about at some point in their life. But um, this is a section where, where God is, as you know, Moses, one of the things about Moses is he got to speak with God face to face, right? Abraham was God's friend. Moses was the one who got to speak with God face to face. And... <clears throat> So in Exodus 34, this is after the first Ten Commandments, the stones had been broken. And so Moses is creating a new set. And he's up and he's talking with God. And God's going to pass before him. And he says, and this is what the Lord says, and this is what he proclaims as he passes by Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So, so here's the riddle, and it, 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 and it always comes down to justice versus mercy. 
How, how in the world can you fully be just and fully be merciful? How is it possible that God can do two things, forgive and leave sin unpunished? How is it possible that you could do those? You know, some people say, well, why didn't God just forgive? Right? Why? Well, then, if he just overlooks things, right, then that's not just. You know, if, if someone murdered someone in your family and the judge just said, you know, we're just going to forgive that person, just move on, you know, with no, you, you would have an outrage in your, in your sense of justice, right? Um, on the flip side, right, you want mercy, right? Because we're all in that state where we need mercy. We realize that if we were to stand before the judge, we're all in trouble, right? So, and, and so you, you sort of bank on God's forgiveness and his mercy, but how can, they both, how can they both happen? How is it possible that God's going to forgive sin, but yet sin doesn't go unpunished? How is it, can David, David lure away Bathsheba from her husband Uriah, commit adultery, later have him put on the front line so he can be killed, and you know he's, he's committing murder, right? How in the world can David be both forgiven for that and yet be held accountable for that? How is it, how can that happen? How can that happen, right? So even when you read the Old Testament, like you think, well, well how? It doesn't seem like you could fulfill both. Of course, we know, right? This is this is what the cross was for, right? This is both justice and mercy meet at the cross. Right? So this, this should give you an expectation like there's, there's something here that, that's left unsaid. And when you read through Leviticus and you start reading about you know, the burnt offering and the sin offering and the peace offering and the guilt offering and all this blood and, you just, and, and, and you know, what, is, what is going on? Right? Well, there's part of this you realize there's a justice element but there's a, there's a mercy element. But even then, even in Leviticus it says that none of those those sacrifices did anything for intentional sin. They were only for unintentional sin. Of course, I'm not, personally, I'm not worried about my unintentional sin when I stand before God. It's my intentional sin that I worry about. Right? And so, how, so how is this, this going to happen? How, how, when I stand before God, um, how are my sins going to be unpunished, and how is he going to have mercy on me? Right? Well, we know the answer, the cross. That's, that's where mercy and justice meet. But that's, that's an interesting riddle, right? You're going to have that question when you read. How does that happen? <clears throat> now, here's nothing sort of interesting. And this kind of goes back to I was talking about Peter's confession and God being sort of obscure about his mission before that point and very explicit after that point. There's, so this is, this is the Apostle Paul, and he's talking about all these things that are mysteries, right? The mystery of the church. And, and one of the things he says, and I find this very interesting, he says, he says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which is decreed before the ages for our glory. Right? So he's talking about something that was decreed in ancient times, right? It was a hidden wisdom. It was, it was an enigma. It was something you were, that was not understood. And he says... None of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, I take the rulers here to be both the earthly rulers and, as he says in, in um, Ephesians 5, you know, the principalities and the rulers in, of darkness, right? So that would get into the, to the demonic realm. They, they did not understood this, for if, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if, if, the, if the game plan was just laid out explicitly and... and um, Satan and his minions and, and 
and the earthly people understood what was going on, they would not have crucified Christ because that was the game plan. So, it was, so in some sense, it was a mystery, but yet at the same time, Jesus expects his disciples to understand that that was the plan all along. That was the plan all the way from, the, from Moses and the prophets for him to suffer and die, but yet Paul says it was a mystery. So, like why did, so why did Christ speak in parables? I think there's a lot of reasons why Christ spoke in parables, but, but in some ways, it's spiritual encryption. Right? Those, those that have hearts and want to learn and want to co- come to Christ and ask him, they're going to get what he has to say. But those who just hear it and it doesn't make any sense, they're going to go on with their day, oh, that guy's, that's just nonsense, right? right? So there's sort of, there's sort of uh, some of that going on. In fact, one of the things that Michael Heiser has this theory that in the temptation in the wilderness with Christ that that was an information-finding mission by Satan. He wanted to know, he didn't really, his, his theory was he didn't, Satan didn't fully know the game plan at that point. He's trying, to, he's trying to probe Christ to figure out what the game plan is. And once Peter confesses, the game's afoot, right? Because it's out. The plan is explicit. Now Satan knows what's happening, and you know he wants to stop it, but yet he wants it to happen, right? Because, so, anyway, so, so sort of keep this in mind. Because like people often ask, well, why, why didn't it just tell us in the Old Testament that exactly what Christ was going to happen to Christ? Well, I would argue it does. But it does so in a way that's not obvious to everyone. Well, we're going to spend a while in, in the book of Exodus, and you're going to see Matthew and his Gospels. When, you remember when um, Mary and Joseph took Jesus, Jesus and fled to Egypt because Herod was killing all the babies, right? And then they, they came back, and Matthew says that's a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, which says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you go back and read Hosea 11, it's about the Passover, the Israelites out of Egypt. And you're like, well, what does this have to do with Jesus and you know, Mary and Joseph coming out of Egypt? Well, Matthew sees something very big going on. He sees that the new exodus in Jesus is happening, and it's following the pattern that was laid out by by Moses in the Exodus. You know, and if you read that, you go, oh yeah, there was kind of the crossing of the Red Sea, there was a baptism, then you're in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is tempted by Satan, and, he, and he's quoting, the very things that Satan, Jesus quotes are right out of the Exodus event. Right? But yet, you know the children of Israel fail, but Jesus passed. He passed the test. He trusted his God, right? So, anyway, so you so you can you so hopefully you'll see some of these things as we go through the go through this class and I'll point some of these up. So that's so there's this idea of type and, and anti-type that you hear a lot. And and so when you use the word type, there's a, it's explicitly used in Romans 5 where Paul is arguing that um, that Jesus was a type of Adam, right? And so, and so Jesus is often called the second Adam. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, partly is because through sin, through Adam, sin entered the world, right? And that's we kind of have the original sin. But through Christ, right, as the second Adam, he he provides the the way out, right? He's the, he's the second Adam. He so we inherit from for those that trust in Christ, those that trust in Him will will receive that forgiveness, right? He's the second Adam, and this so so. This is the term that's actually used, is, is type, which literally means like when a, 
when they would cast a coin, they would put like Caesar's face on it. They would stamp a coin. And that, that coin wasn't Caesar, but it, was, it represented Caesar. Right? It's much like my ring is a type. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean I'm married or unmarried, but it's a type showing that, that I am married. It's not, it's not my marriage, but it's a type. right? It's a, rep, it's a prototype or an archetype which is yet to be developed and revealed. Right? And if you read the book of Hebrews, you realize these things are all over the place. The New Testament writers saw these types and these antitypes all over the place, right? So a type can be a person like Adam. So you look at Adam, and there's many, many types of people that are types in the Old Testament, that are types of Christ, in the sense that they're not Christ, but they foreshadow. There are things in their life that foreshadow the things that Christ did. And Christ is always the perfect version of the type. So the, usually the type is, the, is an imperfect, shadowy copy where Christ is, is the reality. It could, be, it could be something like um, the tabernacle. Right? The tabernacle in, in, when they were in, in, in the wilderness and in, in, in the first entered the promised land, they had their tabernacle. Well, you realize is this tabernacle is, is a representation of Christ. It's a type. There's something about this tabernacle that shows who Christ is. That it's really important when at Christ's death that the temple veil was ripped in two. That's saying something that happened at Christ's crucifixion. Right? Um, Egypt is often treated as a type. Like you read the book of Revelation, it'll talk about Egypt, but not literal Egypt. It'll talk about like Egypt and like Sodom as being this place of spiritual depravity that people want to go back to, right? You want, they, remember the wandering in the wilderness? They want to go back to Egypt, right? This, uh, this kind of type of this, this evil that you want to go back to, back to slavery. Um, I already mentioned the bras and serpent in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, right, where he references in Numbers. We had this, you know, it's just a very brief section of scripture in Numbers, right, that talks about them being bitten by snakes, and so Moses crafts this bronze serpent and holds it up, and they just have to look at it. If they look at it, they're healed, right? And you move on. It's a very brief section of Scripture. It's not, I think it's referenced later. Um, it gets destroyed because they didn't want to treat it as an idol. But, but, but Jesus uses that with Nicodemus, that that was lifted up. Looking at that was, was somehow typified his death and resurrection and being lifted up on a cross, which we'll talk about in some detail later because Isaiah plays on this as well. It can be, it can be an event, um, like the rock in the wilderness. Paul says that rock in the wilderness was Christ. He just flats out says that. Like, oh, okay. So, so the New Testament writers help us understand right? the Lamb of God and the Passover. That's one we'll talk about. These, these, are, these are things that are types. They're foreshadows. They're not explicit prophecies, but, but a lot of the Old Testament is like this. So... So the New Testament authors, particularly the author of Hebrews, call these the, the shadows, and Christ is the reality based on those shadows. Um, you know, it's interesting, Justin Martyr viewed pe- people like Plato and Aristotle as sort of pre-Christian Christians. Because I don't know if you've, read, if you've read Plato, he has this whole cave metaphor where there's a shadow and then there's a reality, Right? So, so Plato had some of these ideas, th- this kind of platonic idea of, of the perfect thing and then that which the shadows that we see. We only see the shadows. Now, that's not necessarily as scriptural the way Plato put it together, but it's, it's a very similar kind of idea. That the, there's things that you see that are only representations of what the true reality is. Right? So we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, and so a lot of what you read in the Old Testament, especially when you look at the Exodus, is going to live in this type, anti-type 
kind of world. So <clears throat> now there are many. Of course, there's, there's so there's both kinds of prophecy you find in the Old Testament. There's this sort of typical prophecy that you have to sort of back up and kind of look at it from 40,000 feet, like the Exodus, right? You know, if you're reading through verse by verse, it's sort of hard to see what's going on. But when you back up and kind of look at it from a distance, you kind of, you kind of understand what's happening, happening at that level. By the way, if you do Bible read-throughs, you like pick different translations, is if you get a, um, an Orthodox study Bible, which the Eastern Orthodox Church uses, and they've, you know, last five years, they've came, they've, ten years, they've came out with a, a full version with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament there's based on the Septuagint instead of the Masoretic text, like most of our Bibles are, which is interesting. So at some point, you should have read the Old Testament and the Septuagint. It's, it's definitely worth reading just to, just to see um, uh, the readings from a different translation. But what's really fascinating to me were the notes. So if you, if you grew up in an Eastern Orthodox tradition, they're very, it's very mystical. And so they, they see types and shadows everywhere in the notes. Some that seem absolutely crazy to me. Right? Like one, they see Mary everywhere in, in the Old Testament. You know, like the, like the jar of... You remember how they took the manna and put it in a jar and put that in the Ark of the Covenant? So the commentators that are seeing that as the, as the womb of Mary. So it, they get carried away with it, right? It's interesting to see. But, but in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, this idea of type antitype is taken to a whole other level of sort of this mystic understanding. And they, 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 that's the way they read a lot of the Old Testament scriptures is this sort of this mystic um, way of reading things, which is, which is interesting, but... Um, um, Anyway, so it's, but it's clear that the New Testament authors saw a lot of the Old Testament in this very typological way. Now, there's a lot of direct prophecy. Like we know from Micah 5 that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, right? And the Gospel of Luke makes a really big deal that even though Jesus was from Nazareth, you know, there was this census that occurred, and that's what got them down into um, Bethlehem so he could born there. So everyone knew explicitly that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. That's a direct prophecy, right? And the Old Testament's full of these sorts of things, right? We know that Malachi, you know, the very last breath of, of our Old Testament talks about this messenger that's going to come before the Messiah, that's going to come and he's going to turn the hearts of the children to their father. Right? That's an example of a very explicit prophecy. That, you know, that's why when the, when the Pharisees came to John, they said, are you, know, are you the prophet? He's, are you the guy from Deuteronomy 18? Are you, are you the Messiah? Which, or, or are you... Um, are you the forerunner? Are you, you know, and of course, John denies all of these, even though he kind of is the last one there. But, um, and, you know, so there's, so there's direct, but there's a lot of, of what we call typical prophecy using these types and antitypes, these shadows and metaphors. And I, and I think a lot of this is why it's kind of like how Christ spoke in parables. These are things that those that search them out and ask about them, will, you'll, these things will be revealed to you. If you don't care about it or you think it's nonsense, you're not going to spend any time on it. It's, so there's, some, there's, there's sort of a, almost a spiritual encryption to it that happens. But, but it's there. It's, clear. it's kind of one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, um, and, this, and this is the things I think Christ expected his followers to, to understand as well. Does that make sense? Kind of the typical... And you'll see, you're going to see lots of examples. So, and Classic example is one that's really obvious in Exodus that everyone knows is, is the Passover lamb. And when, and when John the Baptist comes, he says, Behold the lamb of God. 
He's making, there's, everyone understands the connection he's making with the lamb from Exodus 12. Right? This, is the, this is the sacrificial lamb, and Jesus was that lamb, and somehow it's going to take away the sin of the world. And of course, when you get to the book of Revelation, I think Jesus is referred to the lamb like 30 times. Right? So John doesn't, doesn't let that pass. He says, that's, that's, so that's clearly an example of a type that's the realities found in Christ. You know, in the book of Revelation, he's even, they, he, in the vision that John has, he is, he is seen as a crucified lamb. He still bears the marks of the crucifixion at that point. So anyway, so there's just sort of an, an, an obvious example. Right? And the tabernacle that you see as, as a pattern, that's been God's intention was to build a tabernacle. That means to dwell. He wants to dwell with man. So that's so the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory, the glory that came down, right? God's presence there to be with them. That's that's all a pattern of what God ultimately wants to do. So, yeah. Difference between a type and an allegory. Yes, I think I think I think they're different. Um, So an allegory is more of a a story. It's kind of like an extended metaphor, which. Types are kind of kind of like that, but I I, I, ca- I classify them a little bit differently. I don't I don't think of the Passover lamb necessarily as a metaphor as much as it is a type. But you're right, they're hard, they're very much related. And this and there's the notion of allegory, like Paul does this in Galatians. He talks about the two mountains, right, Sinai and uh, Jerusalem, right. One and and he's talking about that's the difference between Hagar and Sarah. And he says this is an allegory, right. That, you know, and, and so one I'd never thought of before. That's an allegory between Sarah and Hagar and the two mountains, and you know, that's all. So, so Paul uh, clearly, I guess that is a type, but it, and it is an allegory because Paul says it's an allegory. So, which when I read in Genesis, I read that account. I, that's the farthest thing from my mind. Thinking about, it's interesting that that Paul uses that. Well, yeah. Could you clarify for me the difference between type and anti-type? Oh yeah, so. So antitype is the shadow. It's it's the it's the thing that um, that foreshadows another thing. The, the the antitype is the actual real thing, right? Like my my maybe what's a good example? So so like um, the the type of the bra- the brazen serpent is a type of Christ's death and and what effect it has on us. But the type would be Christ's, act, Christ's actual crucifixion on the cross and his actual death on the cross. I thought, it was, I thought the antitype was the reality. Yes, I'm sorry, did I say it backwards? Yeah, anti, antitype is... So basically it's, it's a shadow and a reality. Yes. So, so, so type is the, is the shadow, antitype is the reality. It's the thing that the, that the type represents, right? So, so would Jesus always be the antitype then? Almost always. Yeah, so if, if it's the old question, if, who's, the, who's the antitype? Jesus. You're going to be right 98% of the time, right? So, but yeah, so Jesus is, at least like in the book of Hebrews, right? It's, you know, Jesus is the greater Moses, right? Because he's the son, you know, Jesus is, is the tabernacle, you know. Everything from the Sabbath to everything is found its reality. The sacrificial system, right, didn't satisfy God, but... You know, Jesus, you know, a body you prepared for me, and he died, and he died once and for all. And no more sacrifices when he's sitting, da- sitting at the right hand of God, right? That, that was, the crucifixion of Christ was the reality for which all these, um, like in Leviticus, all the whole sacrificial system was merely um, a foreshadowing of that real event. So in that case, the, you know, things like the sin offering would be the type, and Christ's crucifixion would be the anti-type. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Almost always the antitype is Jesus. Not, not anti against. It means anti. It, it's the thing that the ultimate part of that that proceeds. I like to think of prototype. Like if I'm building something, um, like when I program something, I often build just sort of demo stuff that I'm going to throw away. Right. That's my that's my prototype. Right. And then eventually the one I actually build that gets shipped out. That's that's the real thing. Right. But maybe that's where I don't know. Maybe that helps me and no one else. But does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. Thanks for correcting me. I um, so let's, let, we got a little bit of time. I'm, I want to look at, at a few of these, um, some, some of the direct messianic predictions in the Pentateuch. And these are, some of these are, are very obscure. When you're, if I'm talking about messianic predictions, I'm talking about things that talk about a Messiah. Messiah is, is, means the anointed one, which we know Christ is the anoint, anointed one. Is, is what, what did the Old Testament have to say about this Messiah and the predictions of this Messiah, this, this anointed one that would come? And I'm, so here, here are six from the Pentateuch. Number two has always been a little bit dubious to me, but I'll mention it just because you'll, you'll read people talk about it. But, but right out of the chute, when you get to um, the fall of man in Genesis 3. So, so, so there, Adam and Eve have eaten of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And they, they, have, they have fallen. Right? And then there's, and then God proceeds with these curses. Right? There's going to be the curse on the serpent. There's going to be the curse on the woman and the curse on the man. But yet, when you get to Genesis 3:15, we're going to read it in my my translation. <clears throat> so, verse 15 says, "I will make." He's speaking of the serpent. I will make enemies of you and the woman. And of your offspring and her descendant, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Right, so this is speaking to the serpent in, in Genesis 3. So the idea is that the serpent's going to bruise him on the hill, but he, this the seed of the woman, this descendant from Eve, is going to be the one that's going to be the one that's going to bruise him. It's going to crush. I think in, the, in, in a King James it probably says crush. Does someone have translation crush? Will crush his head. So this is this is so right away you have the fall of mankind right out of the chute in Genesis three. Right? God has put man; he's put him in this garden. You know, they're, they're in a they're in a place of paradise. The only thing is, is they don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is placed right in the middle. He says, "For the day you eat it, you will surely die." Right? What do they do? Right? You know, you know the story. Right? So, but God immediately has a redemptive plan, and in this small obscure. Passage in Genesis three is often referred to as the proto-evangelium. There's, there's, it's bad news that Adam and Eve fell. Right? They've, they've brought death into the human race. So, God, but God already has a plan in mind, and it's dealing with this curse with, with the serpent that He's dealing with, and there's going to be this, this enmity between um, the serpent and the seed of, of Eve. And God, so this, there's a redemptive plan already afoot, right at the fall, right out of the chute in Genesis 3, you have a redemptive plan that somehow from the seed of a woman that there's going to be um, someone or, uh, that's going to um, fatally wound the serpent. Well, the serpent is only going to non-fatally hurt the seed of the woman. 
Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, you have this... Yeah, let me, let me turn to Revelation. What I love with Genesis is, is a lot of things you find in Genesis are bookended in the book of Revelation as well. Right? Because there you have, the, the, in Genesis 12, you have this sign, you know, the sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon on her feet and the crown of 12 stars, right? which is a reference to um, uh, the dream that, that Jacob had. No, yeah, the dream that, yeah, that's the dream that Jacob has. Or no. Anyway, so, you, so that she was pregnant and cried out, it, it, being in labor pain and birth of birth. And it talks about the sign of this, this dragon that's trying to devour the, devour the male child. And she'll give birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was cut up to God on his throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness. And, and it goes on and talks about the, this dragon is the serpent of old. Right? So you have, this, you have the woman who's trying to give birth to a son. And this dragon's trying to immediately devour the son. And of course, if you focus in, you're dealing with Mary, Mary and Christ and Satan trying to devour the son. But if you, if you look at it from a broader picture, this goes right back to Genesis 3.15, where you, even Revelation 12 says this is that serpent of old, right? This picture of the dragon, of this enemy, trying to devour the male child, the seed. So this is often referred to as the proto-evangelon, right? This is, but we, we see that the male child is, is going to defeat the enemy. And, is, and in Revelation, as you know, Satan is, is his end, his demise will, will come, and Christ is victorious through the cross, right? So this is, this is an example of kind of something that's kind of obscure, right? But the, but the whole idea of the plan of redemption was already set in motion right, out, right in the opening, in opening book of the Bible. Right? <coughs> so that's kind of this, so, so again, like you said, it's obscure. It's, it's kind of like when Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple in three days, but, but later on, Scripture tells us he was talking about his death, and um, so this is this is so. And as you see, so the, the the Bible often, as you go through the Bible, you you'll see things. You'll you'll get sort of a germ or a seed of some idea that gets enhanced as you go along, right? So this is something that that will grow on here. And this idea of a seed is going to come up when we talk about Abraham, because because we know this seed is going to come from the line of Abraham. Right? So you're going to see this sort of expanded. Um, let's, cut. let's look, look at the one in Genesis 9. So we're going to talk a little about Noah's in a second, but this is a, this is a weird one that, that I'm just going to throw out there. That, and I was going to talk about Noah here in a little bit. Kind of out of time a little bit. But I'll, uh, so... So at this point, you've, you know you've already had the... the re, so man is, at this point has been destroyed through the flood. You have these, these strange events at the beginning of Genesis 6. You have this, this second... You, know, you had the rebellion in the garden. Genesis 6, you're going to have this rebellion with the sons of men intermarrying with the daughters... Or the, or the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men, the strange event that happens. And then, then God sees, is grieved that man... His heart is always wicked, and so he's going he's gonna to wipe. He's going to wipe out the face of the earth, and he's going to preserve Noah and his sons. And so they survive this. Afterwards, they get out of the ark. You know, they've and, and at some point down the line, Noah builds a vineyard. He gets drunk, and in his drunkenness, he's laying naked in his tent. Somehow, Ham sees him, and he, Ham reports to his brothers Shem and Japheth that what's happened. You remember Shem and Japheth don't look on his father's nakedness. They bring a, a blanket and they kind of cover him up, and then. And Abraham, I mean, I'm sorry, Noah discovers what happens the next morning. 
And then he gives these, these blessings and these curses on, on, on the three children, which are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, said, and, and so there's this poem that begins in verse 25. He says, so he said, Cursed be Canaan, that's the, the, that's the child of Ham, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And then here, here's the part that's a little, says, And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So, so all has to do with that pronoun he in verse 27. So most, like if you have an NIV, it doesn't even use a pronoun. It'll actually just put Japheth in there. It'll say that he is Japheth. Right? But another possibility for that he is God himself. That it's God, it's, so the subject would be the God in the, in the first part of the phrase there. And may God be in the tents of Shem. Now, as you know, if we know the story with Abraham, Abraham's going to be in the line of Shem. So we know the whole Semitic people are going to come from that particular line, where Japheth is going to be the line that's going to be um, the Greeks and the Medes, the Persians and the Romans, right? That's, and then they're, they're going to be the line for them. And so, so, so some people see this as, as Japheth is going to be the ones in the tents of Shem, which makes sense because... All the Romans, the Greeks, all dwelt in the land of the Semites at some point along the line. But there's also this idea that that God at some point is going to be in the tents of Shem, that God himself is going to dwell with man. He's going to be with mankind. And that's kind of this this other view. And so so a lot of people see this as as with with Shem. This is a Semitic, this this is a messianic, obscure messianic reference to God dwelling in the tents of, with Shem, that this is God himself becoming man, which we know when we get is, is that's a, a large story of what happens in like Isaiah 7, is God is going to come and he's going to dwell with man. So I put this in brackets because I, this is beyond my pay grade to understand the, the Hebrew parsing of this poem and what people say, and, and, and authors are divided of it. I just thought I'd throw that out there, right? This is an adult equipping class. Now you've been equipped with something. You, you deal with it. I don't know. So, <laughs> so now, now other ones, we're going to talk about this promised seed. Now we're gonna, next week, we're going to start talking about the Abrahamic covenant in some detail. And we'll, we'll talk about this seed here in some detail. And if you read the end of Genesis 49, when, um, like, yeah, I'll go ahead and go there. Genesis 49. This is where Jacob is... is blessing all the patriarchs. And so he gets through Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And he gets to Judah. And which is interesting about Judah, Judah's actually committed one of the worst sins you read earlier in, in the book of Genesis. So, but yet, God sees him as someone he's got, the messianic line is going to go through. It says, so Jacob gets to Judah, and he says, As for you, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. And here it says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares to stir him up? And this is where the messianic, the kingly part comes. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So this is the idea of the scepter. That's a kingly, that's a representative of, of who's the king. He's going to come in the line of Judah, and he's going to have the ruler's staff until Shiloh, until his presence comes. Now, a lot of, I'm not an expert on the word Shiloh, but, the, but here's the idea that it's going to be God's, God's presence 
and his peace are going to be on them, and he'll, he shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal of the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth are white from milk. Right? This idea of being of this wine and this blood, which is very similar wording that you get in Isaiah and in Revelation, is this vesture being dipped in blood. So again, now you have another this obscure reference. Now you get to the idea of a king. Right? This is long before Israel. Israel even really, ex- you know, Israel's just in their very first you know, people here, and you have this idea of a king, which isn't going to come for a long time, but it's going to come to the line of Judah, and he's going to rule. He's going to rule with authority. And, and so there you're starting to get an explicit vision of where the Messiah is going to come. So everybody knows that the Messiah now is going to come, you know, it's going to come through Judah. Right? So everyone understood that. And we know later we read, 2 Samuel 7, that's going to come through David. Right? It becomes more and more explicit. Then we're going to know where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be from the line of David, who's in the line of Judah. But right clear back in Genesis 49, you get this idea of this coming king. And another, another really interesting one is Numbers 24. Is This is right at the end of Israel's journey in the wilderness. Right? They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. And they come to um, Amalek, who sees this huge army of Israelites coming through. And he hires a Balaam, who's a prophet, an eastern prophet there, to curse them. And so, of course, he can't curse them. He goes to God and God, and so instead of cursing them, he blesses them. God has him bless them. And you finally get, so he has these seven oracles. Finally, you get to the seventh oracle in in Numbers 24. I'll read you the oracle. I'll read you the oracle. Now, we had Christmas last month. This is the only reference I know about a star, that, you know, the star of Bethlehem. And I don't know why Matthew never references this, but this is, this is sort of the one time that that's actually mentioned. So he looks out and he sees, he sees this army of people. Um, so, begin, so verse 15, the declaration of Balaam, the son of Beor, the de- declaration of the man whose eye is open, the declaration of him who hears the words of God. He knows the knowledge of the Most High and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. But look, he says, I see him, but not now. I look at him, but not near. A star shall appear from Jacob. Jacob was the one who just blessed Judah, right? So, so a star is going to come from Jacob, right? Who, who's also... Is also named Israel, right? Son of Isaac, son of Abraham. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall smash the forehead of Moab and overcome all the sons of Sheth. So, so, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession while Israel performs valiant. One from Jacob shall rule and will eliminate the survivors from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discord and he tells them, you know, the end of their destruction. And that's the end of the of Amalek and the Moabites and um, <coughs> Edom, which you can see this over and over again. Those are the perennial enemies of God. You read things like Isaiah 34 where you find the ultimate demise of Edom. But here you have the idea of a star coming out of Jacob and a scepter. Right? That's again like the reference in Genesis 49. There's going to be a king that's come out of, out of that line. And, and Balaam is not even a... You know, he's not an Israelite, right? He's, he's like maybe like the priest of Midian, right? He's, he's someone who knows God. And of course, Balaam turns on God later because he, he actually figures out how to trip 
Israel up by getting them to sin. So and anyway, so he becomes sort of a curse word in the New Testament for what he does. But yet here he has a prophecy about the coming king. So, so yeah. And then I'll, I'll end with this since we're kind of out of time. Um, in Deuteronomy 18 is you have this idea of the coming prophet. There's going to be this prophet that's going to come and you have to listen to him. Remember when John the Baptist, when they came to him, they asked him, are you the Messiah? One of the things they asked him, are you the prophet? And this is the prophet from, from Deuteronomy 18. So maybe we'll pick up on this next time. But this is the idea that this one coming is going to be a king. <clears throat> He's going to be a prophet, right? Which, so a lot of people have held those as separate roles. But here we're going to tie them together. The, the person that's going to be the prophet is also going to be the king, right? And also going to, so... Prophet and actually a priest as well. We'll discover later on. Jesus is going to fulfill the ultimate priesthood, the ultimate kingship, and and the ultimate prophet. So, so these are some examples. Some and so we're out of time. So for next week, we'll I'll finish some of this up. But I want I want to start looking at the various covenants because these are going to form a sort of foundation, a lens through which the Old Testament kind of reveals itself to man and the deal that he makes with man. So and then we're going to particularly start looking and digging in with Abraham. And particularly, like I like Genesis 22, where you have the faux sacrifice of Isaac, and how, and what how does that what are the messianic elements and pictures of the cross? You know, the sun carries the wood up the hill, and all you know all these things that you see there as well. So, which happened to happen on Mount Moriah, which happened to be the same place where Jesus was crucified. So we'll look at we'll look at some of those elements as well. And then we're gonna we'll camp a lot later on Exodus and getting that, and then summon David, and then eventually we want to get to the new covenant. This is, this is, and so anyway, yeah. So all the, the Canaanites, so all the Canaanites, the you know all the different ites you hear that they had to wipe out, you know the Malachites and the, the you know I don't I don't know if the Philistines came from there, but uh, you know the all the Jebusites, Jebusites are an example. They were the ones in Jerusalem that David had to throw out. That, yeah, so there's a long list of those names: Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites, the Malachites. The Malachites, they're an interesting group because they come from the giants and stuff. But that's a whole other thing. But, but um, yeah, so it's all those ites in Canaan that that were going to be wiped out. That they were commanded to wipe out. That would be yeah. So that's that's actually the son of of. Of Ham is named Canaan, actually named Canaan. That area, so all that area, they were called the Canaanites. But it's a long list. That long list of all the ites you hear that they had to wipe out. Those are the Canaanites. Yeah, those are the descendants of Ham. Yeah. So, so I'm out of time. I'll just close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for your revelation, and just may your Spirit help us understand and see you more clearly. And we thank you what you've done for us in Christ's name. Amen. All right.